Let's continue with the reading from Psalm 91. We'll read it responsively. I'll read the first part, and then you follow the, the bold part. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High abides under the shadow of the Almighty. He shall say to the Lord, You are my refuge and my stronghold, my God in whom I put my trust. He shall deliver you from the snare of the hunter and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and you shall find refuge under his wings. His faithfulness shall be a shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of any terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, of the plague that stalks in the darkness, nor the sickness that lay waste at midday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Your eyes have only to behold, to see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your refuge and the most high your habitation, there shall no evil happen to you. Neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he will give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the adder. You shall trample the young lion and the serpent under your feet. And then the Lord says, because he is bound to me in love, therefore will I deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I am with him in trouble. I will rescue him and bring him to honor. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Thank you, Father, that you are our strong refuge. Help us today to move towards your safety and protection. We pray for those who today are most vulnerable. We pray for those who are sleeping in subway tunnels in Ukraine. We pray for those who find themselves on the underside of power with no one advocating for them. We pray for our own vulnerability and brokenness. And we ask God that in these places of desperation and longing, we would find you sufficient. Have mercy, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. And if you're a kid, you can go to your class. Yeah, do we need to scoot? Is that a good thing? If you have room... Um, in the middle of your row, if everyone could just move to this side of the room. So my left, your right, and we'll just find some space, create some space for people. It's so good to see all of you. I know you all have seen my face for two years, but I haven't seen yours. <laughs> uh, and some of you, I've literally never seen your face because um, you started coming here in the last two years. So welcome. Um, we should see each like come up afterwards. We can have a receiving line and you can just introduce yourself. This is my face. Um, what a gift it is to be here drinking. Um, I want to take a minute and just celebrate. Last week at the front of the sermon, I made a call for some help. We have 
the wonderful problem of having so many kids and not knowing how, what to do with them. And as we've been ramping up sort of activities again, we've needed more volunteers and hospitality workers. And so I asked and sort of made a, 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 ple a plea for you all to, to help us out. And I think like three dozen people raised their hand and are filling all sorts of various positions, which is awesome. And we don't do a great job. I don't do a great job of celebrating. I'm more like, hey, we need some help. And then like no one ever hears again. So I want to say three dozen people raised their hand. And that's a small miracle in today's world. Um, if, you are, if you're one of those ones that was kind of hoping that other people would raise their hand, um, I'm still going to say there's an opportunity for you to be a part of life here at this church, and it does involve finding small ways to serve. It doesn't have to be a huge commitment, but little things, when we all do them together, make this uh, a far more, well, make it something that we can all do, that we can all sustain. So if you're interested in volunteering, just go to this website, and it'll have a little place for you to raise your hand and say, I'm, I'm interested in this. As Ginny mentioned, for the season of Lent each week, <clears throat> um, we are setting ourselves in the psalm text. A lot of you know this, but we follow a Bible reading plan called the lectionary that the Anglican Church gives to us. And in, in this lectionary, every week there's a psalm reading, and normally we do them during worship, but we have decided for Lent to sort of soak in these, in these psalms instead. The psalms uh, are a collection of songs. They are a prayer book. Um, they're not one cohesive idea. If you open your Bible up and you find between Psalm 1 to 150 and you try to find like what is, like who wrote these, the answer is lots of people wrote them. Like when were they written? Over a long period of time, several centuries of people from all different sorts of experiences wrestling with what it means to be one of God's people. One of the things I love so much about the Psalms is it confirms for me that I am not the first person to, to wrestle with this idea of how do we have a relationship with an invisible person who sometimes feels so present and sometimes feels so absent, and how do we make sense of this in our lived experience? And the Psalms gives language and testimony to that. It captures the spirit of the individual author and shows us that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to struggle. The Psalms are not clean, they are not um, curated, they are not manicured, rather they are gritty, honest, at times violent, often vulnerable, always realistic, and mostly hopeful collection of songs and prayers written over the centuries by an unknown number of Jewish poets. Our first Psalm today that we're doing, Psalm 91, and it's one of my favorites. It's been my favorite, one of my favorites since I was a kid. When I was in high school, my youth pastor, a guy named Mike Baumgartner, who became my mentor, uh, became one of my dear friends, married my wife and I, known him for a long, long time. And he taught me how to pray, and we would sit in his house, <clears throat> which I don't think you're allowed to even do anymore, um, but I would go to his house, and uh, we would pray together. And he always quoted Psalm 91 in his prayers. We'd pray for like an hour together. It's where I figured out how to do that, which feels like an eternity when you're 16 years old. Um, or when you're 40 years old, it feels like an eternity. But he would always quote this psalm, and I just remember how much it, I've just loved it since then. And then, when I became an Anglican, I discovered that in Compline, uh, which are the bedtime prayers of the Anglican Church, uh, we, Christians all over the world, they pray Psalm 91 every single night before they fall asleep. It's a way of sort of setting the table before, they, before we all sort of collectively give ourselves over to the vulnerability of the darkness of night and, and our own sort of uh, uh, finitude, like our, our, our helplessness in that state. A way of right before we lay our head on the pillow to remember that God invites us into a very warm and safe space that is, in the psalmist's words, under 
the protective feathers of our mother bird. The uh, Israeli scholar Yair Hoffman once characterized Psalm 91 as, quote, an amulet psalm. I didn't know what an amulet was until um, Sophia the First on Disney Junior, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but an amulet is something that they would wear, uh, the, the, the ancient Jewish and Christians would wear little parts of Psalm 91 in an amulet on their chest as a way of sort of almost um, magically feeling the presence and nearness of God. Because the words to this are so, um, they're just so hopeful and beautiful and, and comforting uh, the, the Old Testament scholar Robert Alter says that Psalm 91 has been used by Christians and, and Hebrews throughout the millennia as almost like an incantation, something that would be repeated again and again as a way of settling yourself into the presence of God. So I want to just kind of work through this, this psalm today, not necessarily sequentially, just ask some questions that this psalm raises and then see what it might be inviting you and me into it as far as Lent goes, as far as the world that we're living in goes. So the first thing, as I was, I was working through the psalm this week, and I, and I, I decided to memorize it early on in the week, and I've, I've, been, I've, I've been memorizing Scripture for years. I, have, I think I've shown you this before, but I have an, an app on my phone called Verses, and it's like 10 bucks for a whole year, and you get all the translations, and it uses memory games to get Scripture into you, and it's a really redemptive way of, of using screen time, you know, instead of like just escaping into whatever sort of endless thread of TikTok or Instagram reels or whatever to actually instead be putting the scriptures in, into our heart. So once you get Wordle out of the way, which is, of course, the first duty of the day, then you go into scripture memorization. And so I started memorizing the psalm this week, and one of the things that stood out to me as I just sat in it over the course of the week is this phrase, no evil shall befall you. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, which, of course, I would say, no evil shall befall you. As shells rain down on Ukraine, as heart monitors and hospitals flatlined, as innocent children around the world were bullied, assaulted, and abused, as civil war continues to rage in Ethiopia, as a million Ukrainian refugees pour over the border into Europe, exacerbating an already catastrophic and historic refugee crisis, more refugees than at any other time in human history from Syria and Sudan and Congo and Burma and Myanmar and Eritrea. And no evil shall befall you. How do we understand such a seemingly tone-deaf declaration? Well, people who read Psalm 91 without testing it against the broader story of Scripture are going to come to some very unrealistic expectations about what your life is supposed to be like. I recently watched um, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. I'm not recommending it necessarily, but Jessica Chastain is brilliant in it. And it, what it does is it tells a story of, of course, Jimmy and Tammy Faye Baker, the televangelists, the prosperity gospel preachers. And I hate the prosperity gospel, um, not only because it's lies, but also because it preys on the poor and the vulnerable and has been used across the world to actually further disempower people, and it does so today to our, our most vulnerable people, senior citizens who are just trying to find a way to survive a moment. But anyway, in, in the story, we see uh, the spirit of this, which is that we continue, that those in power continue to sort of line their own pockets while saying, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be powerful. And the thing is, is when we test that idea against the broader story of the Bible, we have to say, that's not true. That is not, that categorically, that cannot be the message of the Bible to you and me. 
But simultaneously, I don't think we should just then for ignore, therefore ignore Psalm 91 as being some sort of unrealistic, rose-colored, romanticized emo song by Copeland that just has a very fake understanding of life. Um, but rather, there's a way, to, I think, to wade into this text and say there's something in here that's true. Which is the second thing I think this psalm invites us into and where I'll spend the most time this morning, which is this psalm invites us to wrestle with contradictions. One of the reasons I love the psalms so much, and I love that we read them every day as Anglicans, I hope you do that. I told you this earlier in the year, but my reading plan this year, I'm not doing the full thing because I, I just couldn't, but I'm just reading the psalm, and then I'm reading the gospel, and that's, that's my daily practice right now. And I love the psalms because uh, reading them every day simultaneously holds out something that's ultimately true in the midst of a whole bunch of circumstances in which that does not feel true at all, but still continues to hold out something that is ultimately true in the midst of the chaos. I was reading a book, uh, I think a year ago, I can't remember, whenever it came out, Tish Harrison Warren, Anglican priest, she's in our diocese, love this woman so much. Um, her other book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, is fantastic, but her book, Prayer in the Night, I think is, should be required reading for every person in this season. If you haven't read it yet, it's available in our bookstore. We don't make a profit on those, we're literally just turning them around at what we buy them for. And if you're looking for something to read during Lent, I can't recommend it strongly enough. It uses the prayers of Compline as a way of moving through how, does, how do Christians wrestle with suffering. How do we wrestle with the moment that we're living in, for example? Early on in the book, Tish tells the story when she was sitting one time in a, in a church and her pastor, a guy named Hunter, said a statement that caused her bones to rattle but also resonated very deeply with her. And the statement was this, you cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to you. You cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to you. You know that, right? Of course, God keeps all kinds of bad things from happening to you. That's obvious. We can all say, well, there's all the things I don't know, and one day we'll get the slideshow. That could have happened. That, that car could have. But, but we also know that there's lots of things that do happen to us. Keeping bad things from happening to us is apparently not God's job. He is okay with his creatures being vulnerable. And so this psalm presses into us the question, can I trust God cares about me when he doesn't stop bad things from happening to me? One of my favorite prints is by a guy named Gustave Doré, and I'm sure I said that wrong, a mid-19th century French artist. He was a, a sculptor and a wood etcher. And this etching is uh, the, the Jacob wrestling with the angel. I'm sure you've probably, I'm sure I've shown it before. It's an etching in wood. This is just a sort of a, a, a print of it, but... It's from the story of Genesis 32. In Genesis 32, Jacob, the patriarch, Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, um, Jacob has spent his entire life running from God, his entire life running from responsibility. His name itself means cunning one because right from his very birth, he comes out of the womb crafty. Like from the beginning, he's trying, like he says that he was trying to grab his brother, his twin brother's ankle, you know, to, to come out first. So he's just been a swindler his whole life. And one night in Genesis 32, he meets a man on the road, and the Bible says this is a man of God, an angel of the Lord. It's the Lord. And Jacob wrestles with this man until morning, and as dawn is beginning to break, the man of God is trying to break free. We don't know why. It's just in the story. He's trying to break free. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Nina, can we put it back up? Oh, I guess we can't do both the video and that at the same time. That's the world we're living in. <laughs> hey, if you're watching from home, we hope you'll come back soon. And we understand you may not be able to also. 
and we're glad you can be with us this way. Genesis 32, Jacob's wrestling with this man and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the man takes his hand and puts it on Jacob's hip and puts the hip out of socket. And Jacob walks with a limp the rest of his life. But he won't let go of God. And finally, God does give him the blessing that Jacob is demanding. He says, no longer will your name be Jacob, cunning one, crafty one, but your name will be Israel because you have striven with God and have overcome. The name Israel, when we talk about Israel and Israelites, the name Israel means one who has wrestled with God. And I love this story so much. I love this picture so much. It just tells me that God is always ready to go another round with me, that what it is in, in, innate to be a human being, to be one of God's people, is to be a person who doesn't just gloss over hard things, but chooses instead to wrestle with the things we can't understand. Why would you allow this? How can you be good and also have this be true? Francis Spuford, I, I think that's how you say his name. This is a quote from Tish's book, Prayer in the Night. He writes, in the absence of God, of course, there is still pain, but there's no problem because pain is just what happens. But once the God of everything is there in the picture, the physics and the biology and the history of the world become in some ultimate sense his responsibility and the lack of love and protection in the order of things begins to shriek out. The only easy way out of the problem, Francis says, is to discard the expectation that causes the problem in the first place, which is by ditching the author himself. Which, to be clear, is not what he is arguing for, ultimately. So that's one option. We deal with suffering and pain. We don't know how to, dis how to, how to, how to make sense of it. We certainly don't know how to make sense of it against a promise like, because you have made the Lord your God your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. We can't square that with reality. And so we're left in this place of like, well, what do I do? I can either reject this idea that there is a God at all, and therefore pain is just pain, and it makes sense because it just happens. But of course, on the other side of that is, I think, an even more terrifying question. And that is, what do I do then with my expectation that pain should be redemptive? That somehow the things that are happening in the moment right now have some sort of greater thing that they're pointing to. And more than that, as Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher, says, if we're going to get rid of this idea that there is an author behind everything and that there is some sort of ultimate end to which even our pain is pointing, we have to ask the other question is, why do we think there's such a thing as goodness? And I don't mean why do we have pleasurable experiences in life. You can chalk that up to biology and, and chemistry and all sorts of things. I mean, why do we have the opportunity in life to feel like we're touching the edge of something that is giving an echo of a greater thing, which is what goodness usually is, whether it's people around a table enjoying fellowship, whether it's seeing something beautiful, an act of justice, whether it's seeing something lifted up from the ashes and given a second shot, we see these things in life and we say, there's something about that that is touching on what feels like just innate to what I go, that's what life is supposed to be about. That's what I should give my life to. And if we have no author, then we have no goodness to test anything against and we don't know how to make sense of both the evil that we have except to say that it just happens and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And so what we're left with and by the way, that's what a lot of people do, and it makes sense. It is, in some ways, a very easy and protective thing, and yet at the same time, don't mishear me. People who deconstruct to a place where they're like, I don't see how I can reconcile the pain of this world with the idea of a good God, and I find it easier to just reject this than to try to continue to do, to do the mental gymnastics required. It's a very painful place, and I know people, many people who have come there. But we're left in this quandary, like we're stuck in a conundrum between, between our, our experience, the evidence of life, and then between and, and, and our expectations. The evidence is that there is a reality of a felt absence. Where is God and why does he seem to do nothing about so much pain in the world? 
But then there's this other side of it. If there is no ultimate good to which my life is pointing or which even the pain of my life is pointing, then why would I have any expectation that there should be something redemptive in this world? Why would I expect or desire anything good? And more than that, or maybe not more than that, but at least alongside that, why should I, why should I have any interest in goodness happening to anyone else in the world? Who has the time to care about injustice on the other side of the world? Let alone one zip code away. And I'm not talking about nuclear holocaust because that has to do with the survival of the species. I'm talking about who cares about the sweatshop and the, the woman who made your clothes? Who has time to care about that? Why should we? And yet something rises up in us and says, because, <laughs> because we care about it, because it's what humans do, because it's innate to me, because I don't know how to make sense of a world in which I don't care about that, because I don't want to live in a world in which I don't care about that, even though it, it, it benefits me in no way to sacrifice myself in order to better the life of an individual on the other side of the planet. Tish summarizes it in her first chapter by saying, I have come to see theodicy. Theodicy is, is the technical term for the vindication of God's goodness over against the reality of suffering and evil in the world. She says, I have come to see theodicy as an existential knife fight between the reality of our own quaking vulnerability and our hope for a God who can be trusted. This is what Jacob and the angel are. Or as Flannery O'Connor says it, theodicy is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be endured. I think the word endured there is the key word. Okay, so then the third question from the psalm. Is this psalm telling the truth? And I would say, in a word, yes. Now, you would go, maybe, how can you possibly say that? You've just spent 20 minutes telling me that the world we live in is uncontrollably evil, that God seems completely absent in it, and that this psalm holds out a promise that doesn't square with anyone's lived experience if they really decide to test the fiber of the promise. How can I say that after all I've said? And I'll say this, because there is a way of seeing the protection of God in the midst of evil that does not negate the real terror of the evil that is happening to you and to me and to our human siblings around the world, but also chooses or puts a stake in the ground believing that while that is true, I am living today in the midst of a good story. I'm just maybe not in a good paragraph. And that's not to say that this paragraph is going to, in the next paragraph, be redeemed. That's not true at all, and we all know that. But can I believe that in the midst of a terribly dark chapter even, that on the other side of this, the end of the story is ultimately good? And that maybe what the psalm is telling us is that there is an ultimate sense to God's protection, provision, love, and guidance to us that is larger than the desperation and the evil of the moment we're in. This story that you and I are living in has unfathomable darkness. People are going to die in your life. People are going to die before their time. Darkness will happen in your life that will choke the hope right out of your body. Darkness will happen to you and to people you love so deeply that it will scar you in a way you feel you'll never be healed. Darkness and evil that simply is and has no sufficient counterpoint. When you're talking to a person who has real, wild, 
suffering in their life, no Christian platitude, no Bible verse serves as a counterpoint in that moment. They need to wrestle. I need to wrestle. We heard earlier in worship, Jenny read us, uh, read us from Luke, four, uh, Luke 3. Luke 3 is the story of Jesus going out into the wilderness and, and um, to be tempted by the devil. And two different times, the devil comes to him with essentially the temptation of a shortcut. There's a way to avoid the suffering of this world if you will take the shortcut. And of course, Jesus was, was here to suffer. That's actually one of the reasons he came. The, the dominant reason he came was to suffer. And so two different times the devil says, there's a way around the suffering. You could avoid it. Here's a shortcut. And two different times Jesus takes the Bible, which he has memorized, and he uses it as a weapon against. This is why we memorize scripture, friends. This is how I fight my battles. So this is what we do with the Bible. We put it in, and then we're able to stand against temptation. Jesus, two different times, uses the Bible to say, no, here is something that is more true than the thing that you are offering to me, essentially sealing his doom in that moment and saying, I'm going to endure the road of suffering and nothing can get in my way. And then Satan does what cynics do and he takes the Bible and throws it back in Jesus' face and he quotes Psalm 91. He says, I thought, doesn't it say that he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone? I thought that the Bible said you wouldn't be hurt because God cares about you. And Jesus says, essentially, you don't know what you're talking about. The same way that Aslan looks at the white witch and says, you've forgotten the deep magic. There's something that you have not taken into account here. You're being overly simplistic. You're reducing this down to one plus one. There's something far greater going on here. Jesus spurns the suggestion that one can presume upon God's saving power for one's own gain. The testimony of Psalm 91 is not that God's people are immune to suffering. But it is that ultimately God will not let suffering or even death separate us from his love and his care. In fact, set against the backdrop of the exodus, set against the backdrop of exile and then return from exile, which is the story of the Old Testament, we see that God's people continually suffer and then ultimately God eventually and ultimately rescues, redeems, restores, renews, rebuilds. The point is that while God's protection did not mean Israel never would suffer or go through pain, in the broader schemes of things, God does guard his people in all their ways. And so what is the psalm, therefore, inviting us into? Besides wrestling, it invites us to abide under God's wings. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Now, the Hebrew, the word, the pronoun is he, but the image is unmistakably feminine. And so if I slip into feminine pronouns, don't burn me at the stake out in the parking lot. That would never happen in Decatur, let's be honest. But <laughs> the image is unmistakably feminine. A mother eagle surrounding and covering her young eaglet, protecting him from the fowler, the hunter, while all hell breaks loose around, keeping the young birds safe. And this is, friends, what you and I are invited to in the midst of a world that is out of control, that feels unimaginably broken at times. I am deeply in love with this image. I've been sitting with it now for more than just this week. I've been sitting with it for a, for a while of this mothering posture of God towards me. 
please forgive how binary this is about to be. Okay, you, I hope you all know my heart. At least in the context in which this was written, fathers, they go out and they fight for their family. They attack back. They shoot arrows back. Mothers shield the young ones, the most vulnerable. And there is a sense in which God is fighting for us, undoubtedly, as our father. But there is also a sense in which in the midst of chaos, like a mother right now, holding her child in a subway tunnel. That that is what God is doing to you and me in this moment. It's what God invites you and me into, a posture of knowing that no matter what happens outside of me, I'm safe right here. Which is why I think this psalm, the true and great promise this psalm holds out is when God says, when they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. Not I will make the trouble go away. I'll just be with you. Not that I'm going to snap my fingers and undo history. But I will be with you. The hope that God offers to us in this, he will keep us close, even in darkness and doubt and fear and vulnerability. Tish summarizes by saying, he does not promise to keep bad things from happening. He does not promise that night will not come or that it will not be terrifying or that we will immediately be rescued out of it. He promises that we will not be left alone. That what God will do in the night is keep watch over us. This is a weird story. I woke up at 2 in the morning my dog was throwing up all over our room. This was last night. We got my dog in 2020. She's a 2020. We didn't have any more, no more babies, but we got a dog in 2020. And um, she was a Christmas present. We brought her home in September. On Christmas Day, she started to die. She got a blockage. She's a golden retriever. She eats everything. She had life-saving surgery on the 26th of December, nearly died. We have a lot of trauma around dog vomit <laughs> because we've seen it. And with all that's going on right now, it just felt like I can't, I can't handle this. Anyway, I cleaned it up. I took care of her. And then I put her in the bed, and I just watched her to make sure she was going to be okay. I called the emergency room. Do I need to bring her in? They said she probably just ate poop. <laughs> and she slept, and I kept watch. And look, it's not a lot, it's not a lot but it's what, it's what God's saying, I'll keep watch, you know? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, he will deliver you from the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his wings and under his pinions you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your God your dwelling place. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, for he will command his angels concerning you, 
to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, on the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. And then the Lord says, because you hold fast to me in love, I will deliver you. I will protect you because you know my name. And when you call to me, I will answer you, and I will be with you in trouble. I will rescue you and honor you. With long life, I will satisfy you, and I will show you my salvation. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.